More than 80,000 writers use Campfire Blaze to write better stories faster. Campfire Blaze is a browser-based writing application with a full suite of organizational tools that help you write stories in world build. Its manuscript module will safely store your project in the cloud and allow you to quickly reference details from your story with auto-tagging. Create dynamic characters with Blaze's character module and explore how they interact with the relationship web. The timelines are extremely flexible, allowing you to plan stories in ways that work for you. Keep track of all your world building with maps, locations, species, magic systems, cultures, and more. Your stories are private, but it's easy to share them or even collaborate with others. Campfire Blaze receives new features every month and is free to use for smaller projects. If you need more space, you only have to pay for the features you need for as little as 50 cents. If you aren't satisfied, get your money back with their 30-day return policy. Go to campfireblaze.com to write better stories faster. Again, that's campfireblaze.com. As readers, we know that stories have power. And though that power can often be a force for enlightenment and good, it can also be weaponized to erase cultures and uncomfortable history. Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, where we share our love for all things fantasy and discuss the broader speculative fiction industry. I'm your host, Travis Tippins. This week's interview is with author Suyi Davies Okungbawa. His latest novel is Son of the Storm, the first book in the Nameless Republic trilogy from Orbit Books, which is out today. Suyi and I discuss how writers can apply strategic project culture to their work, how distinct story engines power our favorite stories, and researching 15th century African empires. And on that note, let's get into the interview. Welcome to the Fantasy NC. It's so great to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Travis. Uh, great to be here. So I know one thing I saw almost immediately in the process of preparing for this chat, I came across some short videos that you've made about things like the writing process and what it's like for uh, your parents to maybe read over your work. Uh, so I'm just curious, you know, what went into making those? I'm not too familiar with TikTok, but your videos look like they could blow up on a platform like that, maybe. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm, I'm not on TikTok at all. Um, I, and, and I made those just like, because I, I figured that, you know, doing a, a lot of stuff on social media that's like very, you know, serious and very <laughs> into like reading, writing. And sometimes I just, you know, feel like maybe sometimes I just want to make fun of some of the things that we do as authors. <laughs> uh, and that was like one of those. And, and maybe sort of give like an intimate idea of like what it is to live, you know, as an author, because you have to think about some of these other things that you never really consider. So that's kind of like what those videos were mostly about. Yeah, no, I love that. I think I uh, was just scrolling through Twitter one day and I saw those pop up and it got a good chuckle. So yeah, I appreciate, I appreciate the different kinds of content like that, where it's not all serious all the time. Yeah. But yeah, so I guess on a slightly more serious note from that, then uh, <laughs> can you remember what first made you fall in love with fantasy and science fiction? Well, yeah, uh, I, I would start by saying I don't think there's like this specific point. It was like uh, an increment over time. The, so the first book of science fiction that I actually read, I was like, huh, it was a book that was like written by a very local author that I, whose name I can't even remember because I was like 12 or whatever. And local to um, Benin City, which is in the south of Nigeria, which is where I grew up, right? And like, you know, someone just probably wrote that maybe for their kid. And then somehow that book got in my hands. And it was pretty much about like these young 
um, Nigerian kids who like find this spaceship and like take it out like for a joyride and probably like the galaxy or whatever, uh, and then sort of like circle back home in time for dinner. It was something very simple, but like just the idea of you know being able to do that as me living in Benin City at the time was like nothing I'd ever seen. Right? I mean, I'd like seen a lot of Disney and Nickelodeon and stuff like that, but I guess that was the first like self insert where I could actually see myself being a part of that in a way that I hadn't. And I, and I, I might say that was the spark. Um, I, I wouldn't think it was like a definitive moment. I wouldn't have thought that at the time, but like thinking back, I think that might have been one of the first times I was like, huh, thinking about myself in relation to like this speculative work. Of course, I also, I also grew up like reading a lot of other literature that like the Greek gods or, or, because we had like books in my father's library. Library. Uh, my parents are both academics, so we had like lib- uh, shelves, bookshelves, uh, and some of them were like you know the Greek pantheon and stuff like that with like drawings. And, and I used to read a lot of those. And then when I got into like um, secondary school, we got to read a lot of African literature, which at its heart, even if it doesn't self-describe in that way, tends to be very speculative in its approach. Um, so I engaged with a lot of that. And yeah, I, I just think incrementally, you know, I guess it, the, the part where I really made the dedication, because I read across the board, but when I really made the dedication to write in science fiction and fantasy was, you know, when I started to take, take writing seriously, which is around maybe 2015 or 2014-ish. And when I was like, well, this is kind of a lot of what I want to do. I, I decided on science fiction and fantasy because, and speculative fiction in general, because of like, its ability to to sort of like put things in contrast that ordinarily would fall within the scope of our world, but like by taking one thing, right, and like tweaking it a bit or like sort of like turning it on its head uh, or stretching the, the, the possibilities of current reality and existence, right, beyond what we currently know and understand gives this opportunity for you to like put something in contrast against other things and like really high contrast in a way we often wouldn't see it. And I think like that's really what drew me. So it's more of like what that does um, than if any particular work in itself. Yeah, but there was like all these other pieces that had to come together for me to come to that realization. I know for me, I like to say if I want to give like the more highbrow answer for why I like fantasy and science fiction so much is like, oh, you know, they're the only genres where literally anything is possible. Right. I mean, yeah. there's definitely internal consistency in everything within a story, but like the sky's the limit. Um, yeah. But then in reality, I also kind of just like spaceships and monsters and dragons and things like that as well. Right. That is um, fair. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, so I've been following your After Five newsletter for a little while where you're talking about how to apply like strategic project culture to being an author, which is an approach I really don't see many writers taking, uh, at least publicly, but it makes sense. Uh, writers are essentially small business owners or entrepreneurs. So what kinds of things do you think writers could be doing better by taking this more strategic approach? <laughs> you know, somewhere in my head, I was like, I hope no one reads this, but then everybody does. <laughs> but, um, I, I usually try to talk about that on the side because I'm a bit of both, right? I'm a bit of like the artist who doesn't want these constraints. Who's like, I just want to like do the thing. But I also, I, my, my first degree is in engineering and I worked in, in um, like consulting. So like I have like all these backgrounds that are very like structural in approach to things, right? Um, who have like templates and like 
things that can like help you gain routine, especially when it comes to projects, which is what art is steeped in, right? That project culture. I try to think about some of the stuff I'd borrow from like, you know, consulting type project culture over to like my project culture for, for my books and art, right? Uh, and one of those things, for instance, was like how to think about planning for your project. Because a lot of time people think artists just like start something and it's like, well, whenever I finish, I finish or, you know, you know, and stuff like that. But I found that uh, creativity sort of like lies in constraint. Um, the constraints don't have to be like rigid. They don't have to be set in stone, but they need to exist. Even if they're just like arbitrary to let like your brain think that, okay, I need to finish this book before December 31st this year, right? That needs to exist. Even if it's not like, if I don't finish it, the world will, and it won't, you know, you probably just pick it up on January 1st anyway, but like, it's key to have these, like a plan, a roadmap, whatever form that takes, it can be a vision board. It can be a, you know, an Excel sheet. I tend to be sometimes granular. I'd be like, uh, I have like weekly word counts to meet that goal. So if I said uh, I need an end date, if I have an end date of December 31st, I would think of how many words I need from now till that time to complete the novel every week, probably, and decide how I'm going to get those words done you know, based on like life stuff. So I would have that kind of plan. And I think everyone needs to have some form of roadmap in that sense. So, so like, because that's what projects are built on. Um, you need to have a project roadmap, right? So that's one example. Um, I talked about failure a bit uh, where I was like, it's okay to do something and then have it not work out. That, in, you know, in project culture, you just like pivot, right? To, to the next thing or the next possible thing. For artists, it can be a new project. It can be uh, another approach to the same project. But like, you need to always be open to that as, a, um, as an artist because, you know, you don't want that, uh, one failure to be like the end of everything because it doesn't have to always be. Um, so, and this cuts across many genres, you know, if you're an author, like you're an illustrator or something, but um, yeah. So those are like some of the things I talked about. I particularly really like that analogy about failure and being rubber ball failures versus glass ball failures. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I think I could use to apply that to a lot of my life, even outside the creative side, because I like the idea of, you know, planning for failure, making it part of the process and yeah. using it as a learning opportunity rather than, you know, an end state. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that, that's like that. I feel like it took me a while to learn that lesson, learn that lesson. And and put it into words, right? I, I'm sure that knowledge of like being able to bounce back from a failure, like a rubber ball uh, versus like a failure that like can actually cause a crash and burn like a glass ball was something I, what's the word, experience to put into words. Um, and so like part of me writing those letters was like me trying to understand what I had learned for myself, but also like help others see that process. Um, yeah, yeah, it's and it's actually a very common saying within a consulting field of like rubber ball failures and like and glass ball failures. But yeah, it's good. Well, I guess I probably should have heard that by now then, because I am also in an engineering consulting field and I have not heard that <laughs> phrase before. So <laughs> definitely something to keep in mind. Cool. But yeah, so I also like, uh, so I know uh, one of the things you say to your students in your creative writing class or your intro to creative writing class is about thinking about how they want to embody the identity of the writer they want to be. Um, mm. So I'm curious, what does that mean? 
Hmm. <laughs> so, so I guess the form that takes is I often ask. So when when new students come to class to the class, um, many of them are not there to be writers. So that's one of the things that's very interesting, especially about college level writing. People taking the class doesn't mean they want to be writers. Some might just be dabbling. Some might just like want to complete the grade requirement, credit requirement. You know, <laughs> there's various yep. reasons. But like your task as like the professor or facilitator in that sense is to sort of show them why this is something that is useful to commit to, to whatever degree. Um, If you want to write stories, maybe as a hobby, it's fine. But this is what it can teach you about yourself, about art, about whatever possible lessons lie there. And so that's what I try to do. So I don't just want to teach them about character and plot and world building. I also want to teach them about how to think about who they want to be as, in this case, writers. But like whatever, I want to like give them a framework for defining what they want to be within a space, right? So one of the first things I do is I tell them at the beginning that they will need to write an artist statement. Not nothing like fancy or anything. Um, this is something that's often done in like the fields of um, other fields, fine art, drama, and stuff like that. But for writing, I think it's also useful because they get to think about what they want to do as writers. What kind of work do you want to put out into the world, and why? Where is it coming from? You know, just to think through those things and like put them down on paper. Um, then we sort of like refine it over the semester. I have them refine it at the end when they've learned more about writing. They've gone through workshops. They've learned about the elements of fiction. So I'm like, now you know all these things. I need you to revisit this idea of the writer. I also teach them about publishing so they know what it means to be a published <laughs> author. Uh, and so it, it really scares us, some of them. They're like, really? Publishing is that? Um, it has so many moving parts. Uh, and maybe some of them had this like grandiose idea of what it means to be a writer. They sort of like, you know, come back to, to the ground and say, okay, maybe I need to rethink my strategy or approach. So yeah, it's kind of like, I like to give them that. Um, it's like, this is the start of your journey. If you have an idea of the kind of writer, you might start to make the journey to, to embody that and sort of like refine that as you, as you grow as the writer. Um, that's something I didn't really have when I started out. I didn't go through the usual, uh, my, my channels, you, you know, the usual channels to get to being an author anyway. It was mostly like very zigzag. So I learned a lot along the way. But I found when I eventually got into academia, I found that that was something that is useful as some sort of uh, guiding star, sort of like a North Star to, to remember that this is the kind of work you're aiming for as a writer on the whole. Um, it, that may change as they grow, but yeah, it, it's it's a good foundation to sort of kick off with, and that's what I try to give my students at the beginning. Right. Yeah. Between that and the whole project culture mentality, I think that's a lot of good things to be putting out there about you know what it means to be a writer as opposed to writing itself. Because yeah. uh, I, I know at least I would have no idea any of that went into it. You know, I was originally one of those readers who was like, oh, you know, all authors are either been dead for 50 years or they're just rolling in their millions and millions of dollars. Right. Uh, but yeah. that's uh, not really the industry. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so you've also talked on Twitter a bit about encouraging your students to pursue alternatives to just, you know, like the standard what we think of as three act structure. Uh, so just kind of opening up there, what sort of other structures are out there? Because uh, I know I am mostly familiar just with that simple three-act structure. 
So, so three act structure. Uh, I, I could talk about three act structure, um, but uh, <laughs> what I was, I guess, trying to say with that thread was mostly, and three act structure was one part of it. It was mostly to remind readers that a lot of writing and reading is expectation, and that expectation comes from previous writing and reading. Uh, and the culture that inspires that previous writing and reading. And so it's like a feedback loop. So if you feed the same thing, you re- you get the same thing, right? Um, a lot of the calls for diversity, for instance, are about, you know, not necessarily hacking out what's currently there or changing. It's about changing the influx, right? The, what goes in so that the output can be different or more diverse in that way. And so that's kind of what I think about even when I think about stuff like structures, right? Stru- story structures have always existed in various forms, many of them not even named. A good example is I only learned about, say, the, the epic forms of the um, storytelling, uh, epic poem, right? Which is what a lot of indigenous traditions in the African continent use, um, where a story is told in forms like song or dance uh, in a sort of like poetry, poetic or like call and response form. Um, these are not forms that are like typical to the Western audience or readership, very common. Um, you, you still see it in, in today's compositions in like Nigeria, where, where people would make new songs out of something and it would tell like a story when you connect like a medley of them together. So these are not things that are usual. These are not things that often make their way even into written literature. Uh, and I, I always think about that. I think about where the source is coming from. Um, a lot of cultures didn't always have written work as the part of their foundation. So their storytelling forms might be oral. And that means they definitely will not easily fall into, say, the three-act structure, right? Which the three-act structure on its own is pretty much, you know, a beginning, middle, end, and and having a certain shape, right? Almost like a bell curve or whatever. Yeah, but it's like the whole first act, second act, like climax, and then denouement and stuff like that. But other stories from other places could have different acts and they could favor other things, right? Um, that, that the three act structure, for instance, favors like um, rising action um, and pacing to read that. But if you read some other stories, um, I, I think I, rem- I can't remember who wrote this story and what year it was, but the story was called Folding Beijing. Um, and it was um, about you know, a futuristic city of Beijing that like um, folds every 12 hours. So like the people on one side uh, live the first 12 hours and like have to go to like sleep and the city folds and the others come, you know, something very like interesting idea. But the structure was not like the typical, okay, so because like the first thing I went in, I was like, okay, so what happens? Because that's the usual drive, right? For the simple, typical three-act structure, especially with the visual media and like the visual culture of like tv and film that follow the same thing over and over but like this story was telling something else but i it was it took me a while to see it because i was expecting something else i looked it up and i think it might have been a four-act structure which is very specific to certain cultures in asia and the way they tell their stories i don't know the in-depth details of it but like i remember specifically that another one is um and this is something I think I tried to test out with um, David Mogo, which was my first novel. Um, that's it right there. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it's it's the telling of a story and, and ending, but starting again. But like, it's the same story, but different. 
the new story, but the same, but different, you know? Right. Um, and, and then again and again. So when most people would read it, they'd be like, this is three novellas. And I'd be like, it probably is, but it probably also isn't as quite, you know? So like that is not too out of turn for a lot of people that come from spaces where that kind of storytelling is not too out of turn. Right. But like, if you were approaching that kind of storytelling, right, as someone new to, to it, what you would do is likely bring your own experience and try to interpret that through your own experience. And so, yeah, um, so that I, I, I sort of like almost swore off structures then. I mean, I, not quite, not completely, but now I try to not let that guide me. I try to think about what is guiding the particular story I'm telling outside of structures. So the three-act structure, there, there's the seven-act, I think. There's the five-step structure. Well, not seven-act, seven-step. There's the five-step. Um, there are all these various you know, um, systems for telling stories. But yeah, as I said, I'm always thinking about the engine driving specific stories. Genre is, is one that actually I don't think a lot of people pay attention to, but I think they know. Like you hear people say stuff like, you know, a, a mystery, for instance, is a good example. Uh, it's like who done it, and then you have this specific structure, right? There's the red herring. There's the you know, there's these certain markers of ex- that you expect at certain times, and when they're not there, you're like, why? And so genre is also there because genre is pretty much a system of expectations. Again, right? So I, I like to like rethink what these things mean, especially within the context of bringing in stuff that doesn't always quite fit into these um, expectations. Yeah, I know in particular, fantasy and science fiction are interesting with that because you typically don't have, like, at least I don't anymore, have one set expectation for, okay, a fantasy story means it's going to be this. If you asked me 10, 15 years ago, I probably would have said, oh, there's a farm boy who discovers that he has secret parentage and he must slay the Dark Lord. And that is what it means to be fantasy, right? But there's so much more within that. You can have a fantasy mystery, you can have a science fiction crime thriller, you can have all kinds of these different combinations. Yeah, exactly. And and I'm, that's really my... When I think of myself as an artist, I think of myself as like breaking all the rules, not even necessarily in good ways. Like I really just want to break them because it, the broken one needs to exist to offer more room for more breaking. Does this make sense? Yeah. I mean, if nothing else, you're pushing at the boundaries of what's already there. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, well, okay, so I have one last sort of craft geek question before we dive into talking about Son of the Storm for you. So I know uh, you've led a workshop last year, I don't know if it's recurring or not, at Arizona State University where you teach the concept of revision as reseeing. Uh, and specifically in the tagline is how that's different from editing. So this might just be revealing my ignorance of writing craft here, but how is revision and reseeing different from editing? I like to think in the terms of sculpting. Editing is more like when you get to the stage, um, I mean, there, there's room for crossover, but like editing is like when you're, when you get clay, right. And you're like, so like your first draft is like, you get clay, you make the quick shape of the, you know, pottery or whatever that you're making. You're like, okay, cool. Now this sculpture is kind of like what I'm going for. But revision is not even like really going immediately to like detailing the eyes, the eyebrows and on the sculpture. The first thing you want to ask is if this is the right shape of the head that you want. That's you know, or or if this shape of the head even works, or if this head is too big for the sculpture. Those are the kinds of questions you ask at the revision stage. Is this even right? You're like, I'm not going to start correcting lines and trying to fig- make the language 
say what it wants to do better and more succinctly, right? Uh, so say what it means more succinctly. I will be asking if I even need that character. That's the revision level kind of question you ask. And I think where they start to cross over is when sometimes the revision questions are also like miniature ones, right? That only affect the paragraph, that only affect, you know, one chapter. And that's almost crosses over with editing because it's the same question you ask at that stage. So I tend to think of like, uh, instead, I just tend to think of them as like global and local revisions. And when the more global it is, the more, the more um, revision it is. And that means you need to do more reseeing than fixing, right? You need to go back and rethink the concept or the idea that you're approaching the page with. Uh, and then when maybe you've gotten to the point where you have all these rough points, right? But they all represent what you want to represent on the page. Then you go into editing mode, which is more like, all right, I'm now going to like detail the things. I'm going to expand this description. I'm going to strike out this line. I'm going to um, not use this term throughout the book. Uh, and I'm instead going to opt for this term. Those are like more local, more um, not just detailed, but like directed, right? They have very specific goals um, as opposed to something more global. Um, so yeah, I like to use reseeing because it, it gives the impression of like, um, it's just, it's also catchy. <laughs> it, it, <laughs> yeah. it gives the impression of like looking down from like above. So it's like a holistic view as opposed to like very nitpicky because as, as writers, a lot of the time we tend to be like very nitpicky and like focused on like the little things when you haven't like fixed the big structural issues and all that. So, right. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And I think that's probably why some of the common advice I hear uh, for writers is, you know, as soon as you finish your first draft, don't look at it for however long, whether it's a day, a week, a month, something yeah. like that. So you can get that distance and you can come back and look at the big picture. Exactly. Um, so it does make sense, you know, big picture, drill down to small picture. Yeah. So let's get into what you're here for. So talking about Son of the Storm. So do you have a pitch for the story? Hmm, pitch. Let's see. I have not practiced this. Um, okay. Um, but Son of the Storm is first in the epic fantasy trilogy, The Nameless Republic. It follows a scholar in a city uh, and a world inspired by 15th century West African empires. Uh, and it follows a scholar in this world who discovers that a lot of what he's scholaring about is not quite right. Uh, and in fact, the truth may be actually worse than um, he thinks. Uh, and then when he does, and he does come face to face with the truth in the form of a woman he meets from a place that he has been taught and understands not to exist, but it does. But not just does it exist, it has its own form of power in the form of magic um, that should also shouldn't exist. And, and uh, he helps her in, in a particular scenario when he shouldn't and ends up becoming like an enemy of the state. And uh, both of them have to escape the forces that are trying to keep all of this down. And in, in that journey to escape these forces, um, they learn a lot about each other and about the violent histories that have been hidden from them and conquest and like forbidden magic and all the good stuff. Yeah, all the good stuff, right? 
Um, and I do love how uh, the main character does take that scholarly approach because I feel like I typically see a lot more of the very fighty variety of characters, to use a very technical writing term right there, where it's often, you know, people with the physical might who come in and they fight their way out of a situation. But as a scholar, it's more about learning some hard truths and, uh, you know, figuring out the world's not quite what you thought it was. So yeah. what, what was that like for you? Uh, was that kind of a challenge you had to overcome to write that type of character? Not really. Um, okay. Th th there's a lot of like story fantasy always like lends itself to like a lot of like battle ready protagonists or like, mm -hmm. um, you know, skillful or, or they end up being skillful at some point. Um, but I think what I wanted to, what I wanted to do with this was think about people who are not always fighting through physical prowess and are always thinking of like other forms of defeating the things that are set before them. Um, with Danso, it's, you know, intellect. Um, with others, it can be like through scheming. You know, it can be like various, people have various methods of like dealing with all these things. And I wanted to place those who aren't like fighters at the center of the story I was telling. And so two of the main, two of the like most key main characters don't even have physical prowess in any way like they can't fight they can't do anything but they are able to wield other weapons right stories for instance or like stories mostly because like i think that's at the core of the story is how stories can be wielded and used to sort of push other things including those who can act who actually have the physical prowess to get things done that these people want and you know in, in, in various ways so yeah, I think at the core, I was thinking about what gets stuff moving aside, like you know, uh, physical engagement, uh, and and Danso being a scholar was like more much closer to home because I grew up like in scholarly background. Um, I have been to like college, like grad degrees and stuff like that, so it felt very close. <laughs> so I was like, well, I'm just gonna tap into something that I know and understand, and so sort of like employ that within this space. So I am curious because I know your first novel that you mentioned earlier, that David Mogo God Hunter. So that takes place in a story kind of set closer to our time, uh, so more yeah. of a modern day setting. But this mm -hmm. we're talking, I'm assuming, uh, is kind of analogous to that 15th century West African empire. So mm -hmm. hundreds of years ago. Yeah. Um, so what was it like to switch settings like that and tackle a story set way before what you wrote before? Hmm. Yeah. Um... Two things. One, it wasn't that different from what a lot of us think. And when I say that different, I'm not saying like technology and like, you know, scientific advancements and those things haven't changed. They have. But I think it's more like the way people think has like not changed that much. Um, people are people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, so I think I kind of started there. Um, for the setting, it was easy. Well, I wouldn't say easy, but like it was easy to pull from my understanding of like the history around the places that I grew up and like what I knew about other people and, and, you know, combine that with research and whatnot. But like when I got to thinking about the people, I always had to ask myself what they would want, even at this time in this fictional world and why they were doing what they were doing. And half the time, the answer always, almost always lay in thinking about what someone would do in certain situations now. And it was always the same answer. The answers were like very similar. Uh, and so in writing David Mogul, I was kind of doing the same thing. And I found that it wasn't that much different with this one. Um, but like switching settings in terms of like the setting itself, David Mogul is like more like 
I could, I took like the city where it said Lagos, Nigeria, and sort of like pushed that a bit beyond its envelope, right? And sort of like wanted to reimagine what would it would look like if you know X Y Z thing happened, this very specific thing happened. But in Son of the Storm, it, I had to start from scratch. I'm like, okay, in the beginning, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right? Yeah. It, it, so it wasn't just like I was lifting off these 15th century empires. It was like what is this world like and why? So like, how does it have two moons, for instance, and why? And what does that mean for what the world is now? And stuff like that. It was, it was much more <laughs> grueling is the word I would use, but like, it's, it's more like I had to rethink, I had to think about everything. So like, if these, why are these there? Why are these not here? You know, and stuff like that. Uh, a lot of what helped me was, I follow a lot of like how M.K. Jemison built her worlds um and she talks about them in a lot, a lot like in podcasts or so I, I followed like a trail of like podcasts and, and videos um and she's done like a couple of workshops where she's like okay we're gonna build a world and she takes like attendance uh, attendees from like top to bottom of like world building and i sort of like followed that breadcrumb and and realized that a lot of world building has to be like done with like the concept of like um what's the word it has to even if like you don't know exactly why something happens there still needs to be a reason for why it exists even if that reason is not true so that's what really yeah like that reason doesn't have to be true it just needs to be believed by those in the story and that's what matters Uh, and i I think i sort of like took that and, and and ran with it and I mean, that sort of goes back to what you were saying about stories as weapons and tools as well, right? Uh, so mm-hmm. it doesn't have to actually be true within the concept of the world. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, you mentioned you didn't like lift directly from these African empires or anything, but you did do some research. So what kind of research did you do? What was that process like? Um, let's see. So when this book idea came to me, it was like much earlier, like 2015, 16-ish. And I was like, working in lagos at the time uh, and i would like go to my parents house in benin city for holidays and stuff uh, and i would i think when i started thinking about telling the story uh, the first empire that really came to mind was the benin empire which is where i was born benin city is where i was born and raised and it's like an, it's like the last remaining vestige of that empire um in southern nigeria uh, and one of the first things i did was i did a not a tour, but like I went to places in the city that I grew up there, but like I never really went because like there was no need. But like this time I was like, how come I don't know all these cool stories about like this place that I grew up in? So uh, I went to like the museum. There's like this very massive museum that surprisingly I found out is like some sort of partnership with the Smithsonian, I think. So yeah, there and then there's this like, there's a lot of, historical objects and like the you know pre-colonial influence um history and even you know during and post so like i was able to learn about that lineage and then around in the city too there's like little spots that i just never really noticed but like now that i was looking i would see statues of like warriors or or some legend that i knew about but i was like oh so this statue has been like here the whole time and some of them would have like engravings with like the story of the person. The the city also had like walls and moats that were at one point the like longest um, man made earthwork 
in the world. And that still exists. And like, there are some points where you go, you see like half a moat or like half the wall still like crumbling. Uh, and I saw a few of those. Um, and so those just like gave me ideas for what I wanted to do uh, and sort of like borrow from. And then of course, like, I coupled that with like, I, I, when I was back home, I just like rummaged through my parents, and, you know, bookshelves and whatever. Like, is there anything that is written at all? Or is it just like oral stuff? So I did end up like getting a few and then I, 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 so after that was like my starting point and then sort of like you open to like other empires because I started like looking at other like influences in empires from Ghana, from Songhai, from Mali, you know, um, moving into the Sahara desert, there were like empires in all these spots. And I was able to find some books on history of West Africa around the, 1000 AD plus and, and stuff like that. So um, it really gave me a lot of insight about how trade happened, why people moved and why they, how they like made treaties and stuff like that. And so I was watching your interview you did with the World Builders Weekly channel on YouTube a few weeks back. Uh, and you mentioned that, you know, part of this research process, it kind of changed the direction of the story somewhat. Uh, so if you can talk about that without getting too much into spoilers, how did that research affect the story direction? You know, now that I think back, I can't say for sure. Um, but I think <laughs> what it did was I had this idea that I was going to write a very specific story, I think maybe to the Benin Empire, right? Maybe I thought, I think I might have thought, I did think I was going to retell maybe some legend or something. Okay. But again, I think what, what really started to drive me away from that was rethinking who I was, what, whose story I was telling and realizing that I didn't really want to tell one of like, just like, you know, physical conquest or like military fantasy or something like that, because that's what it would have ended up being. Uh, I want to tell a story about like some, some quiet person who, who doesn't mean to start up things, but just because of their, the way they are and the way they exist in this world, they always start in something. <laughs> and then one time they start something that's too big for them and it blows out of the water and probably ends up toppling an empire. Who knows? So, so I think when it started to go there, I started to think that I needed more. Uh, and, and because, you know, I couldn't just retell something. I had to think about how other spaces and societies and empires that orbited this space and how they interacted with this space that this, um, these characters live in. And so I started to broaden my scope and like reach out tentacles to see what those other spaces look like. Uh, and that's kind of like how the story changed. Yeah, gotcha. And so uh, I know you said this before about David Mogo, where when you were writing Lagos, it kind of had a spirit more than just being a place with its own unique attitudes and all of that. Um, so I'm curious, uh, how would you classify the spirit of, I hope I'm saying this right, Basa? Basa? Basa. Basa's fine. Basa, um, Okay. The spirit of Basa, that's a good point. Oof. I don't know if I, if this is, this is probably not, wasn't conscious, but I think this came to me when my editor was reading um, the book and she said, Basa reminds her a lot of, like, she, so that she was like, the shade that is being thrown to Basa in this book feels a lot like the shade that is usually thrown to America. And she wasn't wrong because I think I was like, processing a lot of what was happening in America at the time while I was writing that book because I was also physically present. But I think it's one of those places that has forgotten who it used to be and why and just like has been driven 
so far into like decadence in in all the ways right it's like the pursuit of just like more and more growth at the expense of like growth of its people maybe or, or of its like finer points right the growth of its finer points and it's just like so keen on on maintaining this idea of this big powerful entity that it really isn't at its core at its core it's really just like some rotten tree with like a not very great vein that is probably going to split open any second right uh, and so the spirit of Basa is like one always on the threat of like collapsing but never collapsing and that seems to for me describe Nigeria very well and a lot of you know African countries I think would also be similar a lot of post-colonial spaces are like that um, because there's like a history to them uh, and why they have to keep maintaining this idea of like coherence that doesn't isn't really there a lot of the time America reminds me of that too right of trying to like maintain an identity that doesn't on its own even exist you know it's just like it's just trying striving so hard uh and i guess never really stopping to ask itself the question why it's even trying to you know hold on to something that doesn't that is it's a fiction <laughs> it's fictional on its own so yeah basa was like more of like something like that um some sort of like past glory city still trying as much as possible to be like present glory and taking dire steps to sort of make that happen but um yeah that's what i, I would say most of the, the embodiment of basa was like that i mean i think that goes back to your earlier point where you know people are people they're not that different whether that's across time or space so mm-hmm. uh being able to draw those parallels between current present day countries whether that's in africa or north america uh, doesn't really surprise me it's definitely felt relevant for the times yeah but yeah so i guess uh so something that stuck with me from your twitter feed a while back and side note i highly recommend any writing craft enthusiasts follow you on Twitter because there are so many excellent threads that I stumbled upon. But anyways, so it was the idea of story engines and thinking of writing as in the tradition of or in the style of rather than, you know, a specific narrow subgenre. So can you talk a bit about what you mean by this? <laughs> yeah, um, let's see. So this is something I started with my students early, uh, recently because I started doing it for myself. And I found that how useful it was for me to think about my work. So a good example is uh, some folks would like be surprised, for instance, when they read David Mogo, that it has a lot of social commentary in it. They'd be like, I, I went into this book expecting like fantasy, but then you were talking about like the government. I was like, uh, how are they mutually exclusive? <laughs> you know, it's like, um, so I think that, as I said, expectations, right? Um, people, because of this feedback loop of the kind of work they've consumed, They've come to expect certain things. Fantasy that is just like beasts and 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 fighting, and you know they have this idea of like I, I call it pew pew. <laughs> you know, like, I love just that. Like oh spaceships pew pew, and that's what they expect. But like they forget that you know behind the wars that they're witnessing, there's stuff. And sometimes these books get to talk about that stuff. And sometimes these books even completely don't talk about the wars themselves and instead focus on that. So like, but it doesn't stop it being fantasy, right? So I think it's that kind of discourse that got me into thinking about, you know, all these expectations and how the reader expectations and the writer expectations and publisher expectations sort of, I wouldn't say pigeonhole, but like make us not really think about things that don't fit into all these spaces. Even when our work doesn't, 
So one of the things I started to do was ask myself what styles I'm dipping into. That's a, that was the first one, right? In the styles or traditions of whom or what. A good example is, so I do that now. When, when my students bring a, a story, the first question I ask them is, who, what styles or traditions are you dipping into? Sometimes they will know. They'll be like, yeah, I just want it to be like a locked room mystery. The fact that they even know what that means means they already know the space they're dipping into and what the expectations of that space are. But sometimes they don't know they have written a locked room mystery. They were probably aiming for something else, like a cozy mystery, which is not a locked room mystery, which is completely different, right? And why I also say this is sometimes they're also trying to emulate voice, not even a specific kind of genre, right? They're like, I just like the way Neil Gaiman writes, and so I want it to sound like that. So many different things. You want to know all these pockets that you're drawing from, sort of. I think it's important for an author to know, or writer or creator of any sort. But then the next thing, which is where the story engines come in, is so when you have all these things that you are drawing upon for the story that you're telling lined up, which are the primary ones that then drive your story? Because if you want to write now like Neil Gaiman, that's great. But like Neil Gaiman has specific things that drive his stories, language being one of them. So, but you can write, you can draw in the tradition from the tradition of Neil Gaiman as a fantasy kind of storyteller uh, in the way, for instance, he uses monsters in a very specific way, but not draw on the language, right? But you need to be able to articulate that to yourself so you know how to approach your own work and say, yeah, this draws on the tradition of Neil Gaiman in doing this thing. That's what I'm drawing on here. And if you can like really think about your work in that way, it stops. It like The idea of genres just like goes out the window. <laughs> Instead, you start thinking of your, your, your story as a composite of things and what that does is it's not easy for a pub this doesn't help if you're a bookseller so if you're a bookseller <laughs> uh, this probably isn't useful to you but like it helps as an artist especially what i said earlier about like what you're trying to do with your work because now you can sort of articulate to yourself what you're trying to do with you know each piece of work that you bring up, um that you put together and I think that's useful. So it's a useful framework to think about your work, not necessarily a useful framework to say pitch to an agent or, or, or an editor. But sometimes when an editor or agent would say, this isn't quite clear to me, is there a reason you did this? Sometimes that's when you dip into that and say, this is what I'm actually trying to achieve. And trust me, they will mostly get it. And sometimes they'll be like, oh, okay, I see it now. So maybe to get that to come across clearer, this is what you should do. This is what you should do. It makes for like much more productive, you know, conversations than just like, yeah, I write fantasy. Uh, with fantasy, <laughs> that doesn't even mean anything these days to me. Like when someone's like, I write fantasy. Yeah, but like what kind? Like there's so many kinds of fantasy, you know? So yeah. Yeah, it's the difference between the conversation you have with your friends at the pub compared to your editor when you're under contract. Yep, that is, that's, that's it. That's it. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I guess kind of turning that back on you, because I am curious for Son of the Storm, what styles and traditions were you drawing on? Well, to start with, I wanted I wanted to actually really um, dig into like the typical. Well, I'm not going to say typical, but like dominant um, epic fantasy tropes, right? Oh, there's a um, there's a quest, right? There's a quest in Son of the Storm. It's literally at the center of the novel. I wanted like, you know, big expansive worlds, um, magic uh, and, you know, beasts and all of that. So I wanted all those things because I've always loved them. That's part of why I've always loved fantasy, especially of the epic 
uh, kind. But at the same time, I also wanted to flip some things because one of them was, for instance, not having a combative or a fighter as your protagonist, right? Um, not 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 a fighter, not a thief, not a mage, not a you know, just some random dude who is always getting into trouble. Something of the sort. So I wanted to flip a few things. Um, so even the beasts I ended up choosing were not like the usual, because I, I was like, dragons, but not quite. Um, <laughs> is really like where my head was at when um, I was thinking about that. So I, I was really dipping into like the typical, what I would think has come to be seen as like Tolkien-esque, D&D-esque type aesthetic of epic fantasy. But not told in that manner to start with. Like the language isn't doesn't use the same approach. The, then the other thing I wanted to do was to be almost like I wanted to I wanted to present the complexities that I know are present, especially in African societies, in a way that often isn't present in fantasy. And so that that sort of tends to run the risk of like being almost like a, a study of a people. If you read like a lot of early um novels from the African continents from like the, the Achebe times of, um, in like 1965, I think they tend to be like that, but they're not fantasy or they're not seen as fantasy at least because some, many of them had speculative elements, fantastic elements. But um, so I wanted to also draw on those traditions in a way to talk about like granular life for certain people and what that looked like in all the different ramifications, you know? So I was like pulling these almost disparate, um, from these disparate points. Uh, and one of the things I also wanted to do was to have like tongue-in-cheek social commentary in a way that was supposed to represent the world that the characters were living in, but but what would often fit in, say, a book that was written for today, right? A, 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 fic, a, fic, you know, a, um, a work of fiction or maybe even fantasy like for today, but that would like make some allusions and mentions of, like certain things that we would reference. But that happened within the story world. Um, yeah, and if someone was to scroll through all of my Kindle highlights, there's a lot of those references that <laughs> yeah. I was highlighting. <laughs> exactly. So, so um, th- these were like all the places I was like drawing on, but I was also like turning a few on their heads um, in the way I, I felt was like useful, both for the story, but also from someone who comes from where I come from, because it makes more sense for it to exist this way than you know than the way it currently does. Right. And so you said a lot of great things there, but one thing that definitely stuck out to me is how uh, kind of your approach towards language was different than maybe what would be expected in a Tolkien-esque story. So what kind of conscious approach did you take with language for this story? Yeah, the first one is that um, there tends to be a lot of, (laughs) I don't know if this is a, this is more like a, you know, Western-centric Euro-American approach to things, but like there tends to be a very strong lines around like language, which is strange because like I, there's this thing I always say, like every African is at least bilingual, like um, almost at least bilingual. A lot of the divisions that African communities have don't actually come from their own indigenous languages. They come from the colon- colonial languages like English and French and Portuguese. And, and, and maybe there are derivations of that, like Afrikaans and stuff like that. Those languages wouldn't have had those such like, strong borders if not for the these foreign influences so like a good example is nigerians um every nigerian can speak at least one language and and like a common pigeon where if i can't speak 
English uh, and you can, but you can't speak my language. The pidgin is like the trade language, that connecting language, right? And even the pidgin is not the same. Like the pidgin spoken in the South is different from that spoken in the West. They're not that different, but like if I heard it, I would know what they're saying. Even if I don't understand, I'd be like, that person is from that zone, but I don't know what they're saying, but I would know where they're from and who they are. And so I wanted to capture that. I wanted to capture this like city that is a city in itself, but like has, it's multilingual. And so even if people are not quite understanding themselves, that doesn't mean they don't understand themselves. They do. They just don't understand the exact words you're saying. So that was a good way I wanted to do that. So there are many languages uh, and I didn't give them names because I knew that would become too confusing. So what I did was just like, I, I gave them like signal, what I think of like signal names. Um, there's like the main language, which was like the highbrow. If you live here, you, you know, you're supposed to speak this um, in Bas- It's called like high Basai. And then there are others like mainland pigeon or like mainland common, which was supposed to be what everyone else who's not like an aristocrat would speak. But it's not that different from high Basai. It's not like an aristocrat would speak and you won't understand them. You would, but, you know, but these languages are still kind of distinct. Um, often, in fact, uh, mostly they will be seen as dialects. Uh, and I guess that's something I also wanted to bring to light, that dialects and languages are actually a political distinction, right? It's not, there are actually no like clear borders between what is a language and what is a dialect. So yeah, basically that. Um, uh, and, and of course, like it's not science fiction. So I couldn't be like, all right, they're all wearing translators. So they all understand each other. It's fantasy. So I had to think about how that plays out where I'm like where I'm from in Benin City, people would speak. I think if I could count the languages that are spoken in Benin City, uh, English aside, probably have up to five of them that people just randomly speak um, to various degrees. But like, if someone is speaking, you would know if they're from Benin City or not. Even if they're speaking like a pigeon, or even if they were speaking the Benin language, or like, you would know, right? Um, and that's kind of like what I wanted to capture. I'm not sure I've, I have seen the same thing. Sorry. Um, I'm not sure I've seen the same thing in most places I've traveled to outside of the continent, but I know <clears throat> on the continent it exists like that. Gotcha. Well, I guess looking forward a little bit uh, towards the future, are there any upcoming projects you're working on that you're able to talk about? Well, uh, yeah. So this book <laughs> right here, it's called... Um, black boy joy okay so so this says it comes out on august 3rd it's not my book it's um a, an anthology edited by kwame mbalia and it's pretty much a stories um it's middle grade but it's like about young you know boys just being happy <laughs> you know i mean okay. it's it sounds simple but it's very radical right um, and, and i really personally like this quote that says make joy your superpower because these are like stories you don't often get to see, right? Like young black men just like being young black men and, and young black boys being young black boys because that's who they are. And I know there's some specificity here that often isn't paid, um, often doesn't get to be highlighted in, in this way. But I think this specificity of like the young black joyful boy is important, especially today. And so I think there's like 18, yeah, 17 authors. So this comes out in August, and this is what like one of the big things that I worked on, you know, for this past year. It was it was great. I have one story in it uh, along, alongside others. 
apart from that, working on book two of The Nameless Republic. Um, Makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so what to expect from that is I, I like to just say more, more everything that you already have, more politicking, more magic, more... Uh, I gave some teasers on like Twitter and stuff, but like I try not to do that much in case something changes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so like yeah but you're gonna see like more rainfor- rainforests that can do weird stuff um more I- i'm thinking i'm thinking about a sentient hurricane not thinking it's probably gonna be there in some form heists more quests and 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 stuff like that so um that's on the cards i love that it sounds like a lot of exciting things and a lot of fun different story engines to work with there yeah <laughs> Well, something I also always like to check in with people is, are there any books that you've read lately and enjoyed that you can recommend or you want to talk about? Hmm. Yes, I would. I think the last thing I read was The Deep by River Solomon. Um, it's a novella. Um, it's not just River Solomon. Alongside, um, I think, the um, band called Clipping. It's made up of two folks. And I think uh, it, it's about like, um, descendants of those who were thrown overboard from slave ships on the Middle Passage, who now live underwater, like have built like an undersea um, community and uh, are like thri- uh, sort of thriving, but also like struggling with having to always remember that history that bore them. Uh, and so, the keeper, the keeper, I think of this history, sort of like ventures to the outside world and and has to like contend with what. Um, other key parts of this history are going through in some other way. So it's a very um, nice um, imagination of, um, and, I, and I really enjoyed it. It's a short novella from Tor, and it came back, uh, it came out quite a while back, but um, it was just a good um, audiobook because I, I, I listened to it. Um, it was a good um, thing to like work out to and stuff like that. I've heard a lot of wonderful things about that story. So definitely hoping to get it to it sometime soon. But, you know, there's always so many books out there. And then a way I kind of always like to close out these interviews is just asking, what's one thing you're excited about right now? Does it have to be a writing? No, it can be absolutely anything. However you want to take that. Well, I'm I'm vaccinated. So (laughs) yeah, (laughs) I have to say it's a, you know, I just, I, I mean, like the amount of anxiety that like, I've been carrying for over a year, and I'm, I'm pretty sure a lot of people feel this with me. Um, oh, a huge chunk of it has gone down. I don't think it's like means that we're completely free or whatever, but just that being able to like <clears throat> not have to sit with that anxiety day to day, knowing that I've been vaccinated is a very helpful for me. So uh, especially for like my writer brain um, and, and a person brain as a whole. So I'm really grateful for that and I'm excited about it. Yeah, absolutely. I know uh, I'm getting my second shot in 11 and a half days. Not that anyone's counting. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, well, I think that's basically all I have for you today, Sui. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. This has been such a treat. Sure. This This was very, very enjoyable. You can find Suyi Davies Okungboa on Facebook and Instagram as Suyi Davies, on Twitter as I am Suyi Davies, or at his website, suyidavies.com. Pick up Son of the Storm if you're looking for a rock-solid fantasy full of forbidden magic, ruthless ambition, and scholarly secrets. As always, you can find us over at thefantasyin.com. 
or click the invite in the show notes to join our Discord server, where you can hang out with us in real time and find more books than you'll ever be able to read. If you enjoyed this interview, consider supporting us on Patreon or take a minute of your time to leave us a review online. You have no idea how much it means to us. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you can catch all our future episodes. That's all for this week. Until next time.